Seth is gone the next couple weeks, I get the privilege and opportunity to consider continue our series in James. So if you would turn with me um, to James chapter 1, um, our passage today will be verses 26 and 27, but we'll back up and we'll start reading from verse number 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, we thank you that you brought us forth from the word of truth, that we should be first fruits among your creation. Thank you for sending Jesus to save us. Thank you that we get to bear your honorable name and call you Father. God, I pray as we listen to this message that we would not hear it as a list of things to do, but things that we get to be in light of who you've made us. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. So, last week we learned that because God brought us forth by his own will, from the word of truth, that we must actively strive to receive the word and do the word. And we talked about what it looked like to receive the word, what it looked like to do the word, and we needed to do the word purposefully. Today, we're going to take a more intentional look at how true saving faith is evidenced in the life of the believer so that we progressively become more like God our Father. So our main point today, as we look through this passage, is Christian, believer, Real religion is not simply doing the word. Real religion is the outward working of true faith from a changed heart. As we grow in the gospel and become more like our Father, the gospel should affect us. And it should affect us socially. It should affect us personally through a controlled tongue, care for the needy, and growth in personal holiness. And so as we looked at the passage There's a couple words in my point in the passage that stick out to me. And just so when we're talking about these, we're all on the same page. Religion. 
Religion is a hot-button word for most people, something that people don't want to talk about. And so religion and religious is actually a very rare term in New Testament. It only comes up here and in two other spots, the word in the New Testament. And this religious word, religion, has to do, typically in the definition, with the outward practices, usually in the pagan temple, to one of the gods. And so religion is often seen negatively. It's often used to describe a dichotomy of outward actions versus the heart. It usually puts more emphasis on what's happening outward than what's actually being changed. So James is talking to believers. So why does he use this word? Why doesn't he use a word like godliness? He uses the word religion. And I think he's talking to a Jewish body of believers, one who would have been familiar with the Pharisees that Jesus talked to. He would have sat and listened to the same things Jesus had said to the Pharisees. And he's saying, your religion can be real. If you only believe the gospel. And so James's term here of using religion is talking about what's visible about your faith. It's not talking about a list of works that you can do. But something that's real. Something that's visible in the believer's life. So real religion is the outward working of true faith. It's the real thing. I kept, as I was thinking through this, it kept popping up in my head. The... Coca-Cola, the, the commercial, you know, it's, it's the real thing. And I imagine um, kids in here who've tasted Coca-Cola, and if we had them poured out in glasses and they were ta- to taste them, they would be able to tell what the real Coca-Cola was versus the generic Coca-Cola. It has a distinct difference in taste. And so James here is trying to tell us that as believers, as we emulate the Father, that our religion should be the real thing. It should be different. It should put us apart from the world around us, the people around us who just want to do good deeds to other people. And that brings me to the second word that we need to consider, the gospel. See, I think James' use of religion as the outward working of true faith is pointing us to the gospel. And the gospel we can lose all of those outward trappings of religion. It's not about what we're doing, but who God's making us and the heart that he's instilling in us. Ray Ortland says it this way, The gospel is not law demanding that we pay our own way. The gospel is a welcome announcement declaring that Jesus paid it all. In other words, God's final category for you And for me, is not your goodness versus your badness, but your union with Christ versus your distance from Christ. So in the gospel, we all stand on a level ground before the cross. So if we see the gospel here as more, not as something that we have to do, but something that we get to do. God has already done it, therefore we respond. This is real religion. So as we grow in the gospel... And become more like our Father. In this passage, we see three distinct areas that the gospel should affect us socially and personally.
we see first a controlled tongue. If any of you thinks, this, this has the connotation of seems, has the opinion, or maybe you can make someone else have the opinion. If any man thinks, if anyone thinks that he's religious, but does not bridle, does not control, James will have a lot more to say about this, about the tongue. Does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This has the connotation of continually deceiving. You've blinded yourself to the truth. It's a continual deception. This person's religious is worthless. And so I think it's interesting to think about what the Bible says about the tongue. David says in Psalm 141, verses 3 through 4, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil. Matthew twelve thirty three through 34. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers... He's talking to these Pharisees, these religious people. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 15. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth and passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. James, later on, as he talks about the tongue in James chapter 3. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father... And in the same breath, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That's the, I get done with my morning prayers, and I jump in my car, and someone cuts me off, and they're, uh, in the same breath, we bless our God, and then curse other people, that uncontrolled tongue. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth but only such is good for building up and fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So why does James choose the tongue as one of these three indicators? The tongue isn't the overarching, albeit, of Christian faith. It's not the sum of religious behavior, but it is the best indicator. Out of the heart... The tongue speaks. So think of it this way. The tongue is like a check engine light. We get into our car and we drive and the check engine light pops on. And it, as long as you don't have an old car that you know that the sensor's bad, it sends an instant fear of something go- gone wrong. And so as we hear ourselves talking, if our words don't align with the truth of Scripture, if our words don't align with a loving Father, that should be a check engine light in our life. 
it should send us before the cross and before God. How does this most commonly manifest itself in the life of a believer? I think a lot of us have mastered Christian speech and we sound really good in church and we sound really good at community group and maybe sometimes we sound really good with our family. But slander. John Calvin writes it this way. It was indeed needful, talking about James, that this vice should be condemned when the subject was the keeping of the law. For they who have put off the grosser vices are especially subject to this disease. He who is neither an adulterer, nor thief, nor a drunkard, but on the contrary seems brilliant with some outward show of sanctity and will set himself off by defaming others. And this under the pretense of zeal, but really through the lust of slandering. See, James' metaphor here for an uncontrolled tongue is that slanderous tongue that in the name of being holy or righteous or a better Christian, we put other people down for not being as good as we are. We judge them in light of our own selves. This is this critical judgmental attitude where nothing is right, everything is wrong. The outwardly religious person characteristically avoids filth and lying. The average church member, the average person lives a pretty good life in front of their other church members, probably at their work. There's no some some gross sin that people are going to point to usually avoids speaking in poor language and lying, but it's really easy to fall into slander that critical. And we see this here mentioned in Luke chapter 18 with the Pharisee, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. See, he said, I'm good. I don't do this. But look at this other person and judges this person. And so the the words of slander are words that judge other people not in light of the gospel. This is a sin that I believe many Christians, including myself, can fall into. And so as we look at becoming more like our Father in a controlled tongue, I want you to ask yourself, does your tongue at home, does your tongue at the store, does your tongue at work, Make your faith look like a sham. As we grow 
in the gospel and become more like our Father, the gospel should affect us socially and personally. Secondly, through care for the needy. He now just talks about what religion shouldn't look like. He starts to talk about what religion should look like. And so, this pure religion. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit. This is the idea of have compassion and care for. To meet them where they are. Orphans and widows. This is the needy. It's not simply just orphans and widows. It's everyone who has a need in their affliction. This is that trouble, that trial that James 1 is talking about. So what does the Bible say about the helpless and needy? What is God's attitude towards them? Exodus twenty-two twenty-one through 22 says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Deuteronomy 10, he executes justice for the fatherless and widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 68, 5, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. In Luke chapter 10, it says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That's that Deuteronomy chapter 10. And your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then we go into the the passage about the Good Samaritan and how the examples of two religious people, a priest and a Levite, go by this man who's beaten and bloody and they just pass by. They look the other way. They don't want anything to do with him. But the Samaritan has compassion on him and cares for him. He meets the needy where he's at and takes care of him. And this is what Jesus is saying that we should be like. 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So the question we need to ask ourselves in this passage is, is who is our neighbor, who is the needy. And the Bible talks about orphans and widows, but I would like us to look at it this way. The orphan, the widow, the homeless, the handicapped, people with chronic diseases or illnesses, chronic pain, the woman and the child that's going for an abortion, The person who lost their job. The person who is unsaved. The person who doesn't have good social skills and it's hard to talk to. Everyone is needy before God. 
So as we grow in the gospel and become more like our Father, the, the gospel, and we grow in the gospel, we should be the most loving, caring, compassionate people in the world. But this requires us to live out the word without selfishness. And see, this is what I think James is pointing to. He brings it in light of God the Father, selflessly gave us his son. And so we too are supposed to live selflessly in this world, pointing other people to God the Father. Do we emulate God the Father's compassion for these people? Or do we turn our nose like the Levite, like the priests? Do we put our head down and try to ignore the difficult situations around us? Do we harden our hearts to the plight of the needy around us by blaming it on them for some reason? Forgetting that we too are needy before God. Daniel Doriani writes this, We should care for orphans because the gospel teaches that we were... We were and still are poor. The gospel of Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, blessed are those who know their spiritual poverty. They know that apart from God's grace, they are estranged from God and more desolate than orphans. By faith in Jesus, we are adopted into God's family. We should care for widows and orphans, thereby living out the gospel principle of adoption of the needy. Does your life emulate the grace and compassion of God the Father? Do you have a heart for those who are needy, those who are poor among you? Do we share the gospel with our neighbors? Lastly, as we grow in the gospel and become more like our Father, the, effect, the gospel should affect us socially and personally through a growth in personal holiness. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to keep oneself unstained, that's clean from the world. This is that idea of being in the world, but not of the world. It's not talking about that we should just not do anything that this world has to offer, but that we should keep ourselves clean from the worldview, the lifestyle that opposes God the Father. 1 Peter 4, chapter 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer. For human passions, but for the will of God. We should have a personal desire in the gospel to emulate God the Father and one way that we emulate God the Father is putting off sin, 
and becoming more like him. 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 15 <coughs> excuse me, says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of, the God, of God abides forever. So this idea of growth and personal holiness isn't an idea that we will stop sinning, but that we will grow in the fruits of the Spirit, becoming more like God, being convicted of sin, growing in holiness. Do we recognize when we believe the lies that the world tells us, do we recognize when a worldview opposes God? Does that convict us? To keep oneself from being polluted from the world is to keep ourselves from the infection of an evil example and the rule of worldly desires. When it's flu season... We're all apt to make sure that we take precaution, as even though it tends to be a lot of times in vain to keep ourselves from the flu or whatever sickness is going on. But I think too many times, and I find myself even, that we don't take the same precautions against the world's view, the world's philosophies, and we allow them to creep in. And so... to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so I like examples and I know there's kids out there. So this glass of water, our life, do we keep ourselves unstained from the world's view of politics? Do we keep ourselves unstained from the world's view of abortion, the world's view of sex? the world's view of money. You know, it doesn't immediately turn it all green, but it creeps in there. And as all those things get mixed up in our mind and our heart and take us away from God, they slowly turn the whole glass green. And so it's this idea of keeping oneself clean, keeping oneself away from lifestyles that oppose God and His message. Our good deeds should not be like the Pharisees, a smokescreen for our own immorality. We shouldn't love the poor, keep a controlled tongue, make everyone think that we're good as a smokescreen for what lies in our heart. To have the life of God in us and remained unchanged is unthinkable. And I think this is what James is pointing out. He's not saying these are things that you have to do to be saved. But if you're saved, if you're a believer, if you're a brother, a child of God, then our tongue should be controlled. We should speak words that emulate God the Father. 
our care should be controlled. We should have a compassionate care for the needy among us. And we should grow in personal holiness. Are there areas of habitual sin in your life? Have you believed a worldview that is not in line with the gospel? Is your life marked by a growing holiness of becoming more like the Father? I think if the answer is no, then it's that check engine light. We have to examine our hearts, come before the foot of the cross in light of the gospel, and ask ourselves, are we becoming conformed to the image of his son? See, real religion is not about being a good person, but about serving and becoming more like our good God. One author described the American church as a nice man standing in front of nice people, telling them that God calls them to be nicer. What James tells us here in this passage, that religion can't change you. What the gospel teaches us is that a broken man stands in front of broken people and tells them that God the Son, Jesus Christ, was broken for broken people like us so that we'd be fixed forever. That's true religion. That's real religion that emulates the Father and it can be ours. So Christian, do not simply do the word, but grow in the gospel socially and personally and become more like our Father through a controlled tongue, care for the needy, and growth in personal holiness. Let's pray.